Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 40. This episode we rejoin Brigadier Etienne Gerard for more mishaps and misadventures, this time on British soil in The Brigadier in England from 1903. And here's Paul to set the scene. Before I start on my synopsis, I'll uh, just explain that uh, The Brigadier in England is actually a sequel to How the King Held the Brigadier, a story which we covered in episode 15. Having recovered from his unsuccessful escape attempt across Dartmoor, Brigadier Gerard is living under comfortable house arrest at High Coombe, the Dartmoor home of Lord Rufton. There are many diversions as Gerard whiles away the time until he can return to his emperor and his beloved hussars of Conflans. High Coombe provides shooting and cricket, boxing and drunken evenings with Lord Rufton's rough-and-ready sporting companions. And there is Rufton's beautiful sister, Lady Jane Dacre, Of course, Gerard falls in love with her and is convinced that the sentiment is reciprocated. But one day, this idyll is shattered by the arrival of the forbidding Lord George Dacre, Lady Jane's estranged husband who wants her back. Now, we talked about the origins of the character of Brigadier Gerard when we looked at how the Brigadier held the King and how the King held the Brigadier back in episode 15. And those stories featured in the first series, the exploits of Brigadier Gerard, which were collected and published in 1896. And that might have been the end for the Brigadier, but in a mirror of what happened with uh, Sherlock Holmes, he reappeared for a one-off adventure, in his case in January 1900, entitled The Crime of the Brigadier, also known somewhat spoilerifically as How the Brigadier Slew the Fox. Now, he would reappear again two years later in 1902 in what was a really eventful year for Conan Doyle. His book, The War in South Africa, Its Cause and Conduct, came out in January and ultimately earned him a knighthood. It was also in January that uh, the Gillette play Sherlock Holmes was performed before Edward VII and Queen Alexandra. And in March, The Hound of the Baskervilles concluded and was published in book form to widespread and popular acclaim. But the events of that year also left Conan Doyle physically and mentally exhausted and his doctor ordered him a rest. And so in April 1902, Conan Doyle set off on a three-week tour of Europe for a well-earned break. His first stop was to Gaiola, a tiny island off the coast of Naples in Italy, owned by his sister Ida and her husband Nelson Foley. And it was here that Conan Doyle encountered Augusto Bontempi, the inventor of a sculpting machine, which he subsequently invested in without a great deal of success. Uh, Ross Davies and I recently gave a presentation on that saga, which you can find a link to in the show notes. After the trip to Gaiola, Conan Doyle carried on to Venice, and it was here that he hit upon the idea for a new Gerard story, which he wrote up 
on the rest of his travels and gleefully told his mother would pay his expenses. That story appeared in The Strand as How the Brigadier Lost His Ear um, and kicked off the second series of Gerard tales, which were entitled in The Strand The Adventures of Etienne Gerard and began in August 1902. Now that series would see Gerard in the peninsula, in Russia, on the battlefield of Waterloo, or at least very close nearby, and in England in the sixth of the new series, which is our story today, The Brigadier in England. Now that story was submitted to the Strand at Christmas 1902, um, but almost certainly had its origins earlier in the year, back in August, when Conan Doyle was busy playing cricket for the MCC on a tour of Devon and Cornwall and stopped off at Tavistock, where he had, in his early days in medical practice, considered setting up a surgery. Now, notably, Cricket, Devon and Tavistock feature in The Brigadier in England. When Conan Doyle submitted the story to Greenhouse Smith, he wrote, Brigadier number six, it verges on the farcical, I fear, but I can't help it. And the story was eventually published in The Strand in March 1903, the same month that Conan Doyle's Brigadier Gerard play was first performed with Lewis Waller in the title role. And a few months later, it was collected in Adventures of Gerard, in which it was renamed How the Brigadier Triumphed in England to make the title more consistent with the rest of the series. And in many ways, this is a story of two halves, really. It it opens ostensibly with a, a series of sort of comic sketches largely themed around uh, uh, the British love of sport. And here, um, Conan Doyle actually opens the story by having a, a, a second bite at that uh, cherry that is the uh, crime of the brigadier. It won't be the last time he will do that either. He obviously was so amused by the story that he decided he was going to uh, have another have another swipe at it each time uh, he got an opportunity. And I think this opening sequence is really wonderful. And it all plays around Gerard's uh, misunderstanding of, uh, of of British protocols of sport, and particularly uh, there are there are two right at the outset there the the pheasant hunting, where Gerard essentially instead of going out hunting with Lord Rufton, he's going to sneak up on the pheasants and <laughs> kill them all in the sleep, and the second is cricket, where he fundamentally misunderstands the game and believes that instead uh, the purpose of the game is to uh, <laughs> is to hit the uh, hit the batsman with the ball. And so we get this wonderful sequence where uh, Gerard comes in to bowl, says, ah, my friends, the hour of my triumph had come. It was a red waistcoat that he wore, and at this I hurled the ball. You would have said that I was a gunner, not a hussar, for never was so straight an aim. With the despairing cry, the cry of the brave man who was beaten, he fell upon the wooden pegs behind him, and they all rolled upon the ground together. It was for me, the victor, to rush forward to embrace this intrepid player and to raise him to his feet with words of praise and encouragement and hope. He was in pain and could not stand erect, yet the honest fellow confessed that there was no accident in my victory. He did it a purpose. He did it a purpose. (laughs) It's wonderful. And then from there you get into um, his next uh, sporting mishap, which is an old favourite of Conan Doyle's, which is boxing. Yes, and this is this is where, where Gerard follows on from from his 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 last adventure, how the king held the brigadier, mm. um, during which his his escape attempt from from Dartmoor is is held up by a, a boxer in training, the Bristol Bustler, <laughs> um, and a, a, again Gerard misunderstands the whole rules of boxing, and he he's, he he seems to have a fondness for kicking people, not realising this is out of the rules. Um, so again, we're at, at Lord Rufton's house, there, there is, is a gathering of Regency gentlemen, and, and one of them 
is a character named the or Gerard refers to him as the Honourable Bulldog, uh, which which you wonder is this Gerard mishearing the word bulldog? Yes, <laughs> as, as as bulldog, but uh, somehow a, a, a boxing match between Gerard and, and Bulldog uh, occurs in the evening, during which Gerard headbutts him in the stomach, <laughs> kicks him, bites him. And and the, the, it's the responses of the other characters are, are just brilliant to this, as well as the the actual two combatants. Yes, uh, and and just the the, the the comic potential that that Doyle gets out of this is is wonderful, and and it comes of course from the fact that he loves the sport. Yes, yeah. Um, so it, it's this understanding of the sport and the, the 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 love of the sport, and also an understanding of the sport's inherent brutality and ridiculousness. Yes. Uh, and this idea that it's fine to slug someone in the face, but to headbutt them in the stomach or to kick them is is just not on. It, and this this he's he's playing on this constantly. It's 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 very funny, very clever at the same time. It is. Yes, his first half is all this ex- exploration of of um, boorish pugilists and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hale and hearty regency types and principal among them is uh, is lord rufton who is gerard's host in england and uh, and lord rufton is first mentioned in how the king held the brigadier as one of the backers of the bristol bustler <laughs> that, uh, a great boxing character from that earlier story um and we discover here in england that um Rufton had uh, ridden with the police when they had pursued Gerard across the the moors. Um, Gerard thinking he was escaping the prison when, in fact, uh, um, everybody was pursuing him to tell him he'd been reprieved. <laughs> um, and um, but but actually, Rufton is a character who extends into other Conan Doyle works as well. So he actually reappeared in the House of Temperley, which is a play based on um, Rodney Stone and was first performed in 1909. Um, and then his scene in Temperley was later adapted by Conan Doyle into a rather wonderful, very late short story, The End of Devil Hawker, which um, came out in 1930. Uh, and in fact, it was one of the last stories that Conan Doyle was working on. It's um, believed that the galley proofs were on his uh, on his desk the day that he died. Um, and The End of Devil Hawker concerns a card scandal at, at Watiers, one of the great Regency clubs where... Uh, Rufton is uh, is one of the members um, with uh, uh, Lord Byron, and in the presence of uh, other members and and the great boxer Tom Cribb, they investigate the behaviour of uh, Sir John Hawker, who is accused of uh, cheating at cards. And Rufton is reflects this kind of uh, fascination that Conan Doyle had with the Regency period, and and the fact that he he threw a number of stories such as those already mentioned, but also things like A Foreign Office Romance, which we covered in uh, episode 28. He keeps building, keeps returning to this Regency world, and each time he adds other layers to it as well. He obviously has a fascination with the Regency period and creates a really rich environment. Uh, yes, and it, it, it's not only in the in the stories set in, in this kind of very English Regency world. Uh, we also have a, a different version of Gerard. Uh, appears in in um, a novel which which Doyle was very dissatisfied with uh, Uncle Bernack, mm. um, and and so he he's constantly tweaking this stuff and, and tweaking the characters, and and reworking and obviously finding his way around this world and and as you say Mark almost trying to invent in a very modern way 
his own universe yes. for these characters. Yeah, he does. In fact, we might even get a bit of this sort of drifting into the into the Sherlock Holmes stories as well, because in the uh, in the disappearance of Lady Frances Carfax from uh, 1911, um, Lady Frances is said to be the sole survivor of the direct family of the late Earl of Rufton. Mm. So um, presumably that means that uh, Sherlock Holmes exists in the uh, Gerard universe or vice versa. Mm. <laughs> And and as we'll find out later, as we discuss this this particular story, th- there is this connection as well with the the disappearance of Francis Carfax. It is again about uh, abduction. Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, this 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 whole world of of uh, Regency bucks and dandies and sportsmen really had a, had, a, had a great appeal for Doyle. Um, and his description in in this when when Gerard is at the evening events mm. in uh, High Coombe. It's quite wonderful. Um, you get, of an evening, many sportsmen would assemble at the house of Lord Rufton, where they would drink much wine, make wild bets, and talk of their horses and their foxes. They were the same stamp, all of them, drinkers, madcaps, fighters, gamblers, full of strange caprices and extraordinary whims. <laughs> so you've, you've really got a, 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 a wonderful character type yes. being painted here and one of the the main sources doyle used uh, was was the, the wonderful two volume um the, the the reminiscences and recollections of captain gronau um which was published in in the early 1860s uh, and gronau was was a, an officer of uh, the guards uh, the, the the first foot guards the grenadier guards mm. uh, in the napoleonic wars uh, but his reminiscence aren't, aren't purely military. No. Uh, it, it's a whole social reminiscence of, of this time. And and I, he describes these sort of characters brilliantly. And, and obviously he knew them. Yes. So this is this is you know, really good first-hand uh, primary source mm. for, for the, the, these sort of characters. And, and it's quite a, a long quote, but I, th- I think it just gives the whole flavor Mm. So well, and it's obvious that Conan Doyle had paid close attention um, to, to what Grona had to say. Mm. Drinking and play were more universally indulged in then than at the present time, and many men still living must remember the couple of bottles of port at least which accompanied his dinner in those days. Indeed, female society amongst the upper classes was most notoriously neglected, except perhaps by romantic foreigners who were the heroes of many a fashionable adventure that fed the clubs with ever-acceptable scandal. How could it be otherwise when husbands spent their days in the hunting field, or were entirely occupied with politics and always away from home during the day? Whilst the dinner party, commencing at seven or eight, frequently did not break up before one in the morning. There were four and even five bottle men, and the only thing that saved them was drinking very slowly and out of very small glasses. <laughs> the learned head of the law, Lord Eldon, and his brother Lord Stowell, used to say that they had drunk more bad port than any two men in England. Indeed, the former was rather apt to be overtaken, and to speak occasionally somewhat thicker than natural, after long and heavy potations. The late Lords Penmure, Dufferin, and Blaney, wonderful to relate, were six bottle men at this time, and I really think that if the Good Society of 1815 could appear before their more moderate descendants in the state they were generally reduced to after dinner, 
the moderns would pronounce their ancestors fit for nothing but bed. <laughs> and they, these are the sorts of characters that that that, uh, that, yeah. that are being depicted in this story, and and just scene setting. It, it, it's 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 quite wonderful, and you can really see how Doyle has 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 paid close attention and been influenced by by these sort of reports. Yes, and we know he he read extremely widely on the Regency, on all aspects of the Regency. I mean, I think when we covered um, previously, I think, Foreign Office Romance and possibly in the episode on Croxley Master, the fact that he was interested in books like Pugilistica, the great history of, of uh, the origins of, of boxing. And he, we know from his uh, sort of Regency notebooks that he took copious notes on um, major Regency boxing figures, people like uh, John Gully, um, and and his fascination with those sort of characters is something that you see echoed in uh, other authors' works. I mean, Paul, you've spotted a, a sort of connection between the kind of fighting scenes here and, and fighting scenes adopted by other admirers of Conan Doyle in, in their works. Yeah, in, in particular, where we, we have the box fight between <laughs> um, Gerard and, and Bulldog. Just reading the, the 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 dialogue and the language in that, I was I was very much reminded of of Royal Flash yes. by George Macdonald Fraser, um, published in 1970, um, in in which Flash and his gang go back to their club, and and there that night is 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 Otto von Bismarck visiting England, <laughs> uh, and the aforementioned um, John Gully, who actually went on quite a social journey he started out as a, as a as a butcher failed at that and was taught boxing in prison mm. um in a debtor's prison um and was 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 taken out of out of that by the fancy mm. who saw his talent uh and and he actually built his way up to becoming an mp Yes. Um, so went from the prize ring to uh, to the commons. Um, is there enormous difference? Make your own <laughs> mind up. Um, but 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 in this episode in Royal Flash, um, Bismarck becomes interested in in boxing and wants to learn it. And and there's the best teacher in the world, John Gully. Uh, and it it gets a bit out of hand. And and again, Bismarck is is uh, using um, techniques. That, that just aren't allowed. He 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 throws Gully at one point. Both men lose their temper, and it ends up very messily. Um, so the, you've got this 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 reference, I'm, and I'm sure Fraser. We know Fraser was a, a huge fan of, of Conan Doyle, and and he actually wrote an introduction to an edition of the uh, of the Gerard stories. Mm. And so he he was he was very very familiar with this, um, and um, you know, very much approved of, of of Doyle's boxing stories, and in fact. Um, later on, 1997 produced his own Regency boxing novel, uh, Black Black Ajax. Yes. So the, these these traditions go on. Yeah, yeah, and that that scene from Royal Flash is is wonderful in the movie, mm. isn't it? Where you yeah. have Oliver Reed as Otto von Bismarck yes. squaring up against uh, Henry, Henry Cooper. Henry Cooper, our Henry. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much the focus of the first third of this story. Is this kind of the the, the vulgar manners of the uh, fancy. <laughs> And it's really around their sort of male manners and etiquette while in their own um, uh, their own company. The second half is much more around sort of manners and etiquette in in polite society, as we see Gerard uh, become infatuated uh, with Lady Dacre. And and here, this really put me in mind of the other great Regency uh, novelists. I mean, obviously, we have 
you know, we've talked previously about the sort of great Gothic novelists from the period, people like Wollstonecraft, Polidori, and, and obviously the writings of people like Byron as well. But then the two great writers, I think, so I associate with the Regency are, of course, Walter Scott, who we've we've covered and mentioned several times, but also Jane Austen and Jane Austen's novels of of uh, uh, a polite society are something that uh, almost this story almost pastiches in it in a kind of way, it sort of comes at it from a from the male point of view, as it were. And for all we know, that Conan Doyle read Austen, uh, he didn't really have very much to say about her works. She only really gets mentioned in Through the Magic Door. And in the context of um, the Brontes representing a break from what he called the Miss Austen-like calm of the writings that had gone before. Um, and then in 1894, he was interviewed by Robert Barr for The Idler. And he suggested that um, Trollope shared a, a line of ancestry um, with Austen. Yes, it's interesting that it's it's this time he mentions that because um, in, in 1893 we know he he read pride and prejudice mm. um whilst he was living in in south norwood um he, he mentions this in a, a letter to his mother uh in which he, he says that that he liked uh, austin's easy prim subdued style <laughs> and but he he also clearly sort of distances himself from that style of writing in that same interview with Barr, he talks about how different schools of writing can exist alongside each other and says, you know, one can like Valdez and Bourget and Miss Austen without throwing stones at Scott or Thackeray and Dickens, which is an interesting statement in itself because, of course, I think Conan Doyle would position himself much more with <laughs> Scott and Thackeray and Dickens than he would with, uh, with, with Austen and others mm -hmm. as well. But for all he doesn't really see himself um, sharing sort of Austen's company, he is really playing on some of the sort of things that you might associate with Austen, particularly when you have Gerard mooning after <laughs> Lady Dacre. There are some wonderful, wonderful sequences with him uh, stood by the piano. I particularly like this moment. Uh, I was reserved. I was discreet. I tried to curb my emotions and to discourage hers. For my own part, I feared that I betrayed myself for the eye becomes more eloquent when the tongue is silent. Every quiver of my fingers as I turned over her music sheets told her my secret. And then he's uh, watching after her longingly uh, and says, uh, for hours she would sit in a sweet melancholy while I admired her pale face and her curls in the lamplight and thrilled within me to think that I had moved her so deeply. <laughs> but of course, she isn't moved at all. Who she's actually thinking about is probably uh, Lord Dacre, her bully of a husband who she's about to be reunited with. But um, you get this play of Conan Doyle uh, uh, playing on all the kind of manners and etiquettes of the kind of Austen novels and, uh, and playing it from a male point of view. You actually get another... Uh, writer does something similar, Patrick O'Brien, uh, when he wrote the second of the Aubrey Maturin novels, Post Captain, in 1972, which is very much like um, Austen's persuasion, but from the from the male point of view. Yeah, and and there, there was also another approach taken to the Regency novel um, in the 1840s by William Makepeace Thackeray mm. um, and Vanity Fair, um, which. which again goes into the the, the, the lot of the, the niceties of social behavior and so on, but also how that social behavior can be used by an ambitious climber, mm. um, Becky Sharp. Um, so you, you've, you've got that side to it as well. And, and Vanity Fair was certainly an important book to, to Conan Doyle. 
uh, he actually um, rated it as, as one of the three novels which I admire most in the Victorian era. Mm. Um, the other two being Charles Reed's The Cloister and the Hearth and George Meredith's The Ordeal of Richard Feverell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, Doyle also had a family connection to William Makepeace Thackeray mm. uh, in that, that uh, Thackeray had been a close friend of Arthur's uncle, uh, Richard or Dickie Doyle. Um, and Thackeray had written for Punch when Dickie Doyle was a, a leading artist on that publication. And they continued their friendship after after Richard had, had left Punch. Mm. Um, and, and Richard also illustrated uh, The Newcomes. So there's this very, very kind of close family family connection. And um, Charles, uh, Arthur's father, also knew Thackeray, who, who visited Charles in 1851 mm. um, when he was up um, delivering a series of lectures in Edinburgh. Now, Arthur Conan Doyle, in, in Memories and Adventures, um, said, it pleases me to think that I have sat on Thackeray's knee. <laughs> Uh, this this is it's it's a moot point. Mm. Um, Thackeray died when 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 Arthur was four. Um, as I say, we know he went up in eighteen fifty one. We don't know fully if if he visited afterwards. But it's it, it's a nice idea. Yeah. Um, so so it'd be, it'd be nice to think that um, generations of writers, you know, this kind of domestic picture mm. uh, works very nicely. Um, but but. Yeah, you've, you've you've got this as as Doyle is writing his Regency stories, the, the, the various types. Uh, he will have had um, Thackeray and Vanity Fair mm. in the background. That's that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and particularly when we get to this, the second part of this story, which is really concerned with Lady Dacre and the fact that she gets abducted by her. <laughs> husband and this leads to this uh, dramatic duel between uh, Lord Dacre and Gerard but uh, I do wonder if there's a touch of the sort of story of uh, Emmy Smedley in this from Vanity Fair who mm. marries George Osborne not to be confused with the uh, former Chancellor but um, uh, a similarly flawed character <laughs> who is uh, uh, in, uh, in Vanity Fair George Osborne is uh, prone to gambling and laden with debts and eventually uh, propositions Emmy's friend Becky Sharp uh, on the eve of Waterloo, no less, um, mm. and then promptly dies at Waterloo, <laughs> leaving Emmy pregnant and impoverished. And, I mean, in the end, um, uh, Emmy gets together with the with, with the right man. There's a bit of a happy ending for her, but the um, but yeah, I do wonder if there's 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 something in this kind of the poor character of uh, Lord Dacre. Condole describes Lord Dacre this way. His name, it seems, was a household word throughout all England for every sort of mischief. Wine, women, dice, cards, racing. In all forms of debauchery, he had earned for himself a terrible name. He was of an old and noble family, and it had been hoped that he had sowed his wild oats when he married the beautiful Lady Jane Rufton. Um, uh, Lord Dacre then kidnaps Lady Dacre, and it is this that has uh, Rufton enlist the help of uh, Gerard to to head off to uh, Dacre's wonderfully named manor house, <laughs> Gravel Hanger, <laughs> to uh, uh, to rescue her. Yeah, and and this this um, this extra plot line is a, a, an interesting detail at, at this point in in Conan Doyle's writing career because we have uh, this short story set on Dartmoor, mm. um, and the previous year. 
the book version of, of The Hound of the Baskervilles had been published. And, and The Hound, of course, features as part of the legend mm. uh, the wicked Sir Hugo Baskerville <laughs> abducting local uh, farmer's daughter um, to get with, with, with his, his gang of no-good cavaliers. <laughs> uh, and there's also... It's a theme that, that Doyle had, had used before that, uh, we go back to 1884 um, with a, a, a short story he, he had published in Bow Bells called The Tragedians, mm. um, set in Paris, which has a, a rascally actor, Labla, who, <laughs> uh, who who sets his heart on on kidnapping the, the this English Rose Rose Latour, um, and it's 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 the same sort of idea again, and we we also see. Um, from the tragedians and another idea which re-emerges in the Brigadier in England. Yes, yeah, that's dueling. And um, and of course, uh, you know, Gerard and Rufton arrive at Gravel Hangar and uh, um, instantly seek redress. And uh, and Conan Doyle was really fascinated by dueling, I think. He, he wrote a really very learned and amusing article um, entitled The Duello in France for the Cornhill in December 1891, and it's um, it's a really interesting um, it's a really interesting article in that it it, it talks about how dueling is part of the French national character, um, and it goes into lots of sort of vignettes and 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 case studies, as it were, of different um, different famous duels in a way to both enjoy them in their sort of romantic quality, but also then to make a final appeal that actually. Um, the French nation can't join the ranks of the civilized until it's turned its back on uh, on dueling. He actually goes on to say in in the Duello in France, uh, the blend of the many high spirited nations which go to make up the French people of the Gaul, the Armorican, the Frank, the Burgundian, the Norman, the Goth has produced a race who appear to have the combative spirit more highly developed than any other European nation. In spite of the incessant wars which make up the history of France, the record of private combat and bloodshed is an unbroken one, stretching back in a long red stream through the ages, <laughs> sometimes narrow, sometimes broad, occasionally reaching such a flood as can only be ascribed to a passing fit of universal homicidal <laughs> mania. <laughs> And then he says, uh, you know, recent events have shown that this national tendency is as strong as ever and that there is every prospect that the duello, when driven from every other European country, may still find a home among a gallant people whose solicitude for their honour makes them occasionally a trifle neglectful of their intelligence. Um, it's an astonishing statement. Um, but in, within that, he actually covers off specifically dueling within uh, the, the, the Regency period, although he, he makes a rather sweeping statement that the terrible wars of Napoleon put an end to dueling for the time, but the restoration brought it forward again with renewed vigor. And uh, I'm not sure that that's entirely entirely true, is it, Paul? No, not fully. The, 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 it, it did still, you know, find its way into in, into French history in the, the later 19th century. And there's, there's a famous duel that was fought by President Carnot. Mm. Um, so this, this, this it, it still goes on, but then it does in Britain as well. I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's kind of, it does sound a trifle high-handed. It does. Um, <laughs> to, to say, to almost say that this is what the French delight in. I mean, the, the Germans, the, the, the students fought duels with with the Schlager 
to get scars on their face yes. in the mid 19th century. So the, you know, it, it was a German tradition. Uh, we might have outlawed it in Britain, mm. but it still went on. And and I mean, the Duke of Wellington fought more than one duel, including when he was prime minister. Yes, when it was supposed to be illegal. So it, it's it's very it's a bit rich of of, uh, of of Doyle to try and um, say this this is this is a French trait. Yes, it, it is indeed. <laughs> he does actually he does when he concludes the duel in France. He does say. Um, somewhat sheepishly, an Englishman can scarcely be censorious when he speaks of the duels of the past where his own chronicles are too often stained by encounters as desperate <laughs> as any across the channel. So he throws away his entire argument mm. in, the last, in the last paragraph. But you're right about um, dueling in, in Regency London being made uh, illegal, but it still continued and, and right to the top of society in the sense that, you know, there was, you mentioned about uh, Wellington later than the Regency period. Um, Wellington is uh, uh, famously had a duel with the Earl of Winchelsea in 1829 when uh, Winchelsea, uh, who was a, a, an arch-Protestant, objected to the sort of pro-Catholic reforms that um, Wellington was pushing through. Um, and in that instance, um, as the injured party, Wellington got to fire first and missed, <laughs> uh, and Winchelsea fired into the air. Um, and uh, uh, But there was also, earlier than that, William Pitt fought uh, a duel with uh, George Tierney, an MP, in uh, 1788, and both missed. Um, and then in 1809, you have two cabinet ministers, two serving cabinet ministers, Lord Castlereagh and the future Prime Minister George Canning, who was then Minister of War, both fought a duel. Um, when uh, Castlereagh <laughs> heard Canning was trying to oust him, both men were deadly serious. They, they um, picked pistols. Uh, fired at each other simultaneously, both missed. Um, and then it was on the second attempt that uh, Canning managed to get Castlereagh in the thigh, and then they sort of ca- called it quits at that point. But, you know, at that point, honour was satisfied. But uh, but as you say, you know, the, the Tragedians um, by Conan Doyle in, in 1884 is uh, has got a, a famous duel in it, the, the, the premise being that uh, Henry Latour is a, a, is a Parisian actor, um, again, you know, it has to be set in France. It has to be the French who are dueling, um, and uh, and the person who is responsible is another actor. And they decide to take it out on each other in a live performance of uh, mm. of Hamlet, where <laughs> one is playing Laertes and one is playing Hamlet, and they decide to have a have a go at each other in um, much more realistic fashion in Act Five. And it's a wonderful sequence, isn't it? The, the duel is great, particularly I think for. Uh, for the inclusion of one character in particular, who is this um, uh, supposedly impartial judge that they bring in, Colonel Barclay? Well, it, it, it's again uh, as with the with the boxing, uh, playing violence slightly for laughs. Yes. Uh, and and almost diffusing the situation. I mean, it's it, it, it's interesting to look at the, the structure of the story as well, and that you, you have you, you start with with all this kind of violent male buffoonery <laughs> uh, and then then a slight austin-esque interlude yes and then the violence is back, <laughs> is back again <laughs> um, the, the, the men are finding their way about uh, again um and and a crazy duel fought over a kitchen table yes Almost, it's, it's it's so the you know the the, the comic potential is there, and, and as you say, yes, the um, umpire mm. that, that they bring in, Colonel Barclay of the Guards, is is a wonderful character, and and I, I won't give it away because yeah, I think you've got to read, yes, the, the end of the duel for the for the for the 
the full effect of this. It's 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 absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Um, but but uh, yeah yeah, Barclay himself is a, is a fantastic creation, and and when Gerard first sees him, he describes him as a tall, thin Englishman with a great moustache, which was a rare thing amid that clean-shaven race. I have heard since that they were worn only by the guards and the hussars. This Colonel Barclay was a guardsman. Um. It, it, <laughs> it's 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 again one of these 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 moot points. Um, the, the the British army at the time was clean shaven, apart from the hussars, because they were uh, deliberately styled on on continental soldiers. Mm-hmm. We're not told whether Barclay is actually uh, a foot guards or horse guards. No. Um, if he's got the moustache, it more likely that it'd be horse guards. Horse guards. But again, still frowned upon because the Duke of Wellington absolutely loathed facial hair. <laughs> um, and and we, we can come back to uh, Vanity Fair on this one as well because Thackeray points out that there was a craze mm. um, at the time of, of, particularly around the time of Waterloo, um, for young British officers to uh, to, to grow moustachios. Um, but but they, they wouldn't last long because this this it was just so frowned upon. Um, so it, it it is quite odd to have this this senior guardsman wearing you know, splendid moustache that would fit in more with the Victorian period. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, that puts me in mind of another thing that Conan Doyle says in this in this duello in France, where he talks about a um, the epoch of uh, Louis the Thirteenth. And uh, and refers to somebody called uh, De Boutvi, who was uh, uh, quote famous for his innumerable jewels and interminable mustaches. <laughs> um, and when he goes up to the scaffold for having fought a duel, uh, the Bishop of Nantes uh, says, uh, uh, "Do you still think of life?" Um, to which uh, De Boutvi replied, "I think only of my mustaches, the finest in France." <laughs> This this again is, is is part of Wellington's objection to moustaches because they're so associated with the French army. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> but back to the uh, back to the to to the story and Lady Dacre ultimately is uh, is sort of reunited with uh, with Lord Dacre and uh, honor is satisfied and uh, without without bloodshed. But in the end, the whole violence has proven to be uh, to be totally un- unnecessary. Um, but um, there is a, a nod to uh, an interest that Conan Doyle would would come to have fairly soon, which is his interest in um, divorce law reform. And uh, we've mentioned this previously that Conan Doyle uh, eventually became uh, president of the Divorce Law Reform Union in uh, in 1906, and in 1909 he wrote a very influential essay. Divorce law reform, which uh, contributed to the establishment of a royal commission, which eventually, I mean, fourteen years later, it was a very, very long time, <laughs> paved the way really for the Matrimonial Causes Act uh, in 1923, which, um, which uh, sort of levelled the playing field a bit in terms of the legitimate reasons for divorce. Um, I don't, I don't think Conan Doyle is seriously exploring these issues in in this story in the way that he would in, for example. Uh, the adventure of the Abbey Grange, or uh, the adventure of the Devil's Foot, um, or even as he sort of tentatively um, skirts around the issue in uh, uh, the story of B twenty four, one of the Round the Fire stories. Mm. Um, but it is interesting that it's uh, uh, it's in there. It's uh, something that we know 
we know now in, in hindsight was something that was going to, to occupy his mind for a great many years to come. Yes, it is a, 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 a strange approach to the issue in this story. And, and also, it's, it's one of its flaws to me is the characterization of, of Lord George Dacre, mm. who we're told is kind of, oh, you know, almost the devil incarnate. And then he just yes. unconvincingly uh, turns into this, this man who's very sorry about his past yes. and you know, want, wants to turn over a new leaf. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's just done un- unconvincingly. Yes. Uh, yeah. And again, you, you've got this, this almost dichotomy that the Gerard sees him doesn't, I mean, doesn't like him because he's jealous of him, of course, yes. but also because he sees him as a brute. And Gerard's answer to the, uh, to the, the, the problem is easy. And I'm, I'm sure it's not one that, that, um, Doyle argued for when he was president of the Divorce Law Reform Association, um, when Gerard's solution is, there is no divorce so quick and certain as that which I could give her, which is obviously <laughs> using his barkers. <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's a, it's a very entertaining story, this one. It's not one of the strongest of the Gerards, I don't think. It's one of the ones that I think... Uh, doesn't have the kind of light and shade that you get in some of the best of the Gerards. It is indeed, as Conan Doyle said in his letter to Greenhouse Smith, one of the more flippant pieces. But I think it's enjoyable nonetheless. Oh, absolutely, and and uh, as you said, it's 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 almost uh, just just a nice interlude away from the um, the usually military theme Gerard stories. Yes, indeed, indeed. So that's it for this episode. Uh, you can find the show notes at doingsofdoyle.com. And if you'd like to sponsor the podcast, then you can find out details at the site as well about how you can do so on PayPal or on Patreon. And next time we're looking at a altogether different story. Oh, absolutely. In, in, in the next episode, Ancient Egypt meets Victorian England in the mummy-tastic lot number 249. (laughs) And that's one of my favourites. So I very much look forward to that. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. You make much of this boxing, I see. No doubt it is interesting enough to see two of the lower orders slash each other with their fists. But surely, well-bred men dispel this, no? Well, Count, each country to its own game. Splash it all over. (laughs)